Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the pew in front of you. Uh, it is the version that I am preaching from for the most part. There are some KJVs there as well, if that is, suits your fancy. Uh, but Ecclesiastes, we're continuing on in this study. Uh, we have uh, gotten about halfway through the book now because there's 12 chapters and we're coming to the tail end of Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 12 this morning, uh, but before you get settled in too much, I'd also like for you to turn back into uh, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, because uh, we're going to be spending some time there this morning as well, and I want you to be able to see uh, what I'm reading. We're going to spend some time there. Uh, as, as I've been doing my study, as I started my study last week, specifically for uh, chapter 6, I ran into some issues with these three verses at the tail end of chapter 6. Uh, the main issue that I'm having with it is that to me, um, they didn't seem to fit in the narrative for last week, which included a good portion of, of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and then most of chapter 6. Uh, with those verses, those, that passage, it focused on the futility of trying to find ultimate satisfaction in wealth and how worthless life is if we don't have the ability to be content with what God has given us. And then, verses 10 to 12 also don't seem to fit into chapter 7 either. If you look at chapter 7, you'll see that the first 14 verses of chapter 7 are just a bunch of Proverbs. It's like one verse Proverbs that you know go for 14 verses. And so, I wasn't sure what to do with our passage today because it doesn't really fit with the pursuit of wealth. It doesn't really fit in the, um, the Proverbs part of chapter 7. And so not knowing how best to handle this, I decided to look and see what other pastors had done. If you know people had preached through this before, I wanted to see where they put those verses. And what they would do is they would either lump it into chapter 6 and then take a quick turn at the end to hit this you know, change in the passage, or they would put it in at the beginning of chapter 7 and then do a turn again at that. And I didn't want to do either of these things. Uh, so I thought, hey, I'll try to tackle three verses and make this interesting for you guys here today. Um, so with these three verses, Solomon, again, is focusing on the futility of life. Right? This time he's going to make a case that everything is set and already determined by one stronger than we are. And yet, even though everything is set and determined, we cannot know all that there is to know uh, that is good in this life or what will happen to us after we're gone, right? What will happen to the world after we're gone? And so with that in mind, let's open up with a word of prayer and then we'll take a look at these three verses that gave me a, a big challenge over the last two weeks. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us from it that our eyes would be opened uh, to the realities that are in it and that we would have hearts that decide to change based on uh, how we measure up to what you have said in your word. I ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So let's take a look. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 10 to 12. It says, Whatever exists was given its name long ago. 
And it is known what mankind is. But he's not able to contend with the one stronger than he. For when there are many words, they increase futility. What is the advantage for mankind? For who knows what is good for anyone in life in the days of his futile life that he spends like a shadow? Who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? You see how that doesn't really fit in with the pursuit of wealth and it doesn't really fit in with the Proverbs? You see where the challenge has been for me for the past two weeks. Because in, these pas- in this passage, Solomon begins by pointing back to creation in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 by referencing when everything was created and when everything was given its name. Then he says, it is known what mankind is. But what is he referring to here? Well, let's take a look at Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll get an idea of what Solomon means by this particular uh, verse. So we're going to begin in Genesis 1. We're going to look at verse, start in verse 26, and we're going to go to 31. Genesis 1, 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came and then morning the sixth day. So in Genesis 1 we see that God decided to create humanity in His image. It says male and female, He created them. And then He chose to put us in dominion over the rest of His creation. He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. He wants us to fill the earth and subduing it. And in the process of filling the earth and subduing it, we would have different roles to play. Right? Those roles would complement each other. Right? The strengths of the man would shore up the weaknesses of the woman, and the strengths of the woman would also shore up the weaknesses of the man. And for a while there in the Garden of Eden, there was shalom. That's Hebrew for, for peace. Right? Calm. Everything was going wonderfully. Everything was perfect in the garden. Now let's look at Genesis chapter 2 where we get a little bit more of an explanation of God's creative process in creating Adam and Eve. So flip over to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verses 4 through 7. Genesis 2, 4 through 7 says that these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. 
So we see here in these verses that uh, to create Adam, God took dust from the ground. He formed it into his shape and then he breathed life into him, which gave him his being. And he is called Adam, which has a direct correlation to his his creation. The Hebrew word for ground is Adama, A-D-A-M-A, right? So the name Adam means man, but it gets most of its structure from the, the concept of dirt or dust. All right, so this is what Solomon is referring to when he mentions that whatever exists was given its name long ago and it is known what mankind is. The name of the first man gives us some insight into his nature. He is dust. And here in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you why that's important. But along with the creation of man in Genesis 2, we also see the creation of woman and how that happens. Let's take a look at that, 17 to 23 in chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And so we see here that man was created from the dust of the earth and woman was created from the rib of man and therefore we are both created in God's image and we are both made from dust. Now why do I keep mentioning that? Like why did I stop and emphasize the word dust as I was reading through the beginning of that? And why do I keep talking about this dust and why is that important? Because God is going to mention it again in part, uh, as part of our creation in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve sin by disobeying him by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So again, let's go on to Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. There in Genesis 3, God is speaking. Beginning verse 17, He said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. So Adam's name was derived from the nature of his creation, and after sin entered the world, it also represents a foreshadowing of what he will return to after he dies. From the dust he was created, and to the dust he will return due to his disobedience. This is part of the punishment for sin. 
But that wasn't the only punishment for his disobedience. God also cursed the earth that Adam and Eve were meant to fill and establish dominance over, and now it's going to fight back. Right? Childbirth is now going to be difficult. This is one of the things that God says to Eve. Right? Relationships are going to be broken. God tells Eve that there will be a battle for dominance in her relationship with her husband. The ground is going to fight back instead of willingly giving up its crops. So now by the sweat of his brow, he will be able to eat from the ground in no other way. It says sickness and death are now unavoidable realities in this life. Everything was broken because sin entered the world. And now that sin has entered the world, another consequence is a broken relationship with God. Right? Our relationship with God is broken. And because of that, we also experience that battle with one another that I mentioned just a moment ago. And so we are in constant battles with God, also with ourselves for self-preservation, for self-exaltation. We want what God has. Right? We want that power. We want that prestige. We want the honor and glory that only God is meant to have. We want that. We want it so much that we'll battle other people for it. Other people in our lives we're going to fight with. We're going to strive to position ourselves to have better in whatever relationship that we're in. Now here again, you might be wondering, what does this have to do with our name and our nature? Right? What does being dust have anything to do with all of this? Well, because we come from dust and we will now return to dust due to sin, being made from dust, if you read throughout the rest of the Scriptures, being made from dust is synonymous with weakness. I mean, if you think of something that's made of dirt, right, there's no power from dirt. There's no power in a clay pot. Dust has become synonymous with weakness in the scriptures so when solomon points back to creation when he points out our sin he is pointing out that we are now weak he's pointing out that we are broken and we are tenaciously looking after ourselves on top of that we are still rebellious against god because we do not appreciate the consequences that our sin brings into our lives we fight against those consequences and because of that, we will turn our eyes towards the Lord and we will have contempt for Him. Right? It might not feel like contempt. We may not describe it as contempt. But how do we feel when things go poorly in our life? Right? Do, do we not grumble? Do we not complain? Do we not shake our fist at something? Well, in that, we have contempt for the Lord. Right? And that makes us want to, as Solomon puts it, contend with Him. Like this idea is stepping into the ring. Right? We want to fight. Our sin nature makes us want to fight with the Lord, so we, we want to do things our own way, and then when we inevitably reap the consequences of doing things our way, which never ends well, then we want to declare, that's not fair. I don't deserve this. Why would you bring this into my life? And we shake our fist at God. We want God to answer for His part in this. And Solomon's wise enough to understand that we cannot contend with God. doesn't matter how much power or prestige you have in this life. You cannot stand toe-to-toe with the Creator. And he says as much in verse 10, uh, verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 6. 
Right? The lie that Satan told Adam and Eve in the garden was that they would be like God if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if that had turned out to be true in the way that they wanted it to be true, right, where they had his power and they had his prestige, then maybe we might be able to stand toe-to-toe with our Creator. But that's not what happened. What happened was that we remain the same creatures that we were before sin occurred, just animated dust. And the only thing that changed from that was our knowledge of good and evil and the fact that we had broken and severed our relationship with the Father. And because of that, we are now more frail than we were before due to the introduction of sin into the world. Our relationship with God was broken due to sin and our bodies would also break due to sin. Solomon points out continually throughout all of Ecclesiastes that that this makes everything about life under the sun futile. If all we're living for is what this world has to offer, it's meaningless. He says over and over again, it's like chasing the wind. It's vanity of vanities. And Solomon thinks that we should accept the futility of it all. In verse 11, He points out that arguing about any of this won't help. It only increases the futility of the world. This is something uh, a guy from the Old Testament named Job found out a lot about at the end of the story in a book written by the same name. Job was a righteous and faithful man that God allowed Satan to test because Satan declared that Job is only righteous, Job only cares about you and worships you and honors you because you give him good gifts and you protect him from hardship. And so God allows Satan to take away his wealth. He allows Satan to take away his children. And he allows Satan to take away his health. The only thing that Job was left with was a nagging wife that encouraged him to curse God and die. Now to his credit, Job did not curse God. Especially at the beginning. At the beginning he said, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But as that struggle continued, as the pain continued, as there was no end to it, he did begin to feel like he had been given a raw deal and he wanted to speak with God about that face to face. In Job 23, Job says this in verses 2 to 7, Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. If only I knew how to find him so that I could go to his throne. I would plead my case before him. I would fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn how he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he prosecute me forcefully? No, he would certainly pay attention to me. Then an upright man could reason with him and I would escape from my judge forever. And so Job thinks that if he could find his way to God's throne, he would show up with all these arguments about why everything that he was experiencing wasn't right and how if God would just listen to him, he would realize that there's a mistake has been made. Certainly you would not do this to me if you really knew who I am. And now... We might want to try to give God a pass here, tell ourselves that it wasn't really God that was doing these things to Job. But we need to be mindful that nowhere in the book of Job does God pass the responsibility of anything that happened to Job to Satan. How easy would it have been to be like, Job, it's not me, Satan's doing this. But God owns it all because He gave it His approval. 
And no matter how that makes us feel, we have to deal with the fact that God approved the testing, temptation, and the struggle that Job faced. Now, God didn't put the temptation before him, but he allowed it to happen. And we have to deal with that. And in the midst of this struggle, as as Job is wrestling with this poor health, the constant pain that he's in, the the loss of family and and wealth, he desires to meet God face to face to discuss these things. I will give him these arguments and he will surely see it my way. And this idea does not go well for Job. I don't know if you guys have ever read to the end of the book of Job, but in chapter 38, the Lord shows up in a whirlwind and he says this. This is 38 verses 1 to 7. The Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Where were you when I did all that? God goes on like this for four chapters. He lists out His power. He lists out His authority on all that is created. And He keeps asking Job, how do you measure up? Can you do that? Do you know all this stuff? Do you have the power to do these things? Do you know what I know? Can you do what I do? Surely the one who wishes to inform me of how things should be understands these things, right? And in the end, Job wanted no part of this anymore. He realized the mistake that he made. In chapter 42, Job says in verses 2 to 6, I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard reports about you, but now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I reject my words and am sorry for them. Listen to this. I am dust and ashes. So he just essentially said, I am weak and nothing. Before the Lord, I am weak and I am nothing. We have it again, this idea that we are merely dust and and ashes. After being confronted by God, Job remembered his place. He remembered what he was made of and he repented of his desire to speak his mind before God. We must constantly remember that we are owed nothing from the Lord. We must also constantly remember that God knows what's best for us. This is the ultimate answer to one of Solomon's questions in verse 12. Solomon is looking at the question from a human perspective. Who knows what is good for anyone in life? In the few days of his feudal life that he spends like a shadow, and the answer from that perspective is no one. We don't know what is good because often the things that we want to pursue are the worst things that God could give us. No one knows that. No one really knows what's best for them at any given time. I mean, think about it. Think about the choices that we face 
all the time. Do I move here or do I stay where I am? What is best for me? We don't know what those decisions are going to mean for us. Right? Do I take this job or do I take this job? Do I continue dating this person or should we break up? Should I invest in this stock or another stock? Should I buy this car or should I move on to something else? No one on earth can know the answer to those questions. We just have to choose one of them and deal with the consequences. God knows what we need. God knows what is for our best good. He knows first and foremost that we need Jesus to stand in representation for us. Right? We need the atoning sacrifice that Jesus provided for us on the cross because without that, we will turn to dust. And when we turn to dust, we will be separated from God forever. And along with that, God knows what we need to make us more like Jesus. That is the end goal for all of God's people. That is what is best for us. And knowing that allows, we, we feel more comfortable with this idea that God is allowing things to happen to us so that it will shape us into the image of Christ. I've used this imagery before, but when you take a piece of sandpaper to a piece of wood, you can shape that piece of wood. But that sandpaper is harsh. It is aggressive. If you put it on, on your finger, you will regret it very quickly. But in, with the harshness and the aggressive nature of that sandpaper, we can shape that wood to look like however we want to. And in, in a, essence, that's what God does to us. He sends all this hardship to us. He sends all the problems of life that we quickly try to pray away, but He's using that to form us into the image of Jesus. Unfortunately, most of what makes us like Jesus is unpleasant. Because if everything goes our way, we often forget God. Right? Look throughout the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, every time God blesses Israel, every time God gives them a land flowing with milk and honey, they rebel against God. They start loving His stuff and despising the order and the law and the control that God puts on their life. They inevitably begin to go and worship other gods that promise this thing and that thing and they stop focusing on their Creator. And we can see it in the church in America, right? Has there ever been a church more blessed than the church in America? And look at how weak and fruitless it is. But look at the persecuted church. Do you know where the, the, the fastest growing church is in the world? I'm pretty sure it's in Saudi Arabia where they will cut your head off for being a Christian. Now we, we grow out of hardship. We grow out of persecution. It makes us more like Christ when we deal with these things. When we come out the other side of it, we are more like Jesus after that. And we would never, ever choose that for ourselves because we don't know what's good for us. We always want to choose the easy path. We always want to choose the path that gives me the most glory. Solomon asks one other question in verse 12, which is, who can tell anyone what will happen after him under the sun? 
And he's again assuming the answer is no one, right? After you die, what do you know about what happens in this life? Nothing, right? You're gone. We do not have the ability to know what happens on this earth after we are gone. Le- legacies can come crashing down, right? You spend, he talks about this, right? You build all this stuff up. You try to pass that legacy on to your children. And the next thing you know, they're a bunch of idiots. And all of a sudden, it starts falling apart. Right? Fortunes can be lost, right? Those who are down and out, they can come rising up, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can, fortunes can be made. But due to our natural limitations, there's just no way for us to know what happens after we're gone. But God knows. God knows, and He's orchestrating things so that they will turn out for His glory and for the ultimate best good for His people. Now, sometimes that means that we have to hit bumps along the way. That means that we have to struggle individually along the way. But at the end, it means that our best good is being orchestrated by the creator of the universe. And that's why it is imperative that we must learn to trust God. We must learn to trust Him. We must comprehend well that we are dust and He is the creator. Isaiah 45.9 says, Woe to the one who argues with his maker. One clay pot among many. Does clay say to the one forming it, What are you making? Does your work say, He has no hands? This idea of the creation arguing with the Creator. You shouldn't make me that way. You should make me this way. Is absolutely ridiculous. Could you imagine going to a pottery class where you're sitting at the wheel and you're turning something and it starts talking to you and say, I wouldn't do it that way if I were you. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? But yet, here we are as dust looking at the Creator and saying, you shouldn't do it that way. You shouldn't send this into my life. It would be like a pot telling a potter what to do. Once we learn that it is not in our best interest to argue with the Lord, our lives will go so much easier. That doesn't mean that our lives will be easier. All right? If we grow through hardship, if we grow through persecution, then it's in our best interest of the Lord on our behalf to send those things our way. But if we can come to terms with the idea that this is for my best good, if we can come to terms with the idea that God knows what He's doing, then we won't have that inner fight among ourselves and the Lord trying to figure out what all's going on. God could explain it to you. You probably wouldn't get it. Just trust that He knows what He's doing. Now that obviously doesn't mean that we can't pray and and ask the Lord to make some of this stuff go away. It's not saying we shouldn't pray for people's healing. It's not saying that we shouldn't pray for hardship that's going on in people's lives. But we should be okay when the Lord doesn't answer our prayers the way that we ask them. Remember I said before, Tim Keller tells us that if we knew what God knows, we would pray for the things that were given and not against them. Because we are limited, we often make a mess of things. We fight against what God is sending down the path for us because we don't think it's what's best for us. But God knows it all. He knows what you need. He knows what is going to be best for you and for your family. We must remember that nothing is outside of God's control. 
And so today here, as you come into this place and as you get ready to leave, how are you doing with the idea that you don't know what's best for you? How are you doing with the idea that what God sends to you is for your good or maybe for the good of someone that you will interact with? Can you handle the responsibility of hardship in your life? And the answer really is no. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be straight with you. The answer is no. You can't handle that on your own, which is why we need to stop fighting with the Lord when He sends it to us and cling to the Lord so that we can have His strength and His peace and His comfort as we go through it. Let's think about that as we leave this place today. Let's pray. Father, it is my desire that we would be people who see well, we see our own brokenness. We see that we are dust. And that we understand that we cannot contend with you. And I pray that you would open our eyes and give us peace regarding the fact that hardship and struggle and whatever else comes our way is doing so for our good. It's doing so so that we can become more and more like Christ. And it also comes down the, the path for us so that we can be shaped by it and encourage others who are going to go through it after us. So Lord, if we, if we focus solely on this life, it, it truly is futile. Solomon is wise in his understanding of that and his conveying of that through this book. Help us to, to be aware, though, that there is more than this life. Help us to be aware that you are in sovereign control over it all and that we should lean into you and trust you. I ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.